Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is an important leader in the fight against COVID-19, with his company, Johnson & Johnson, on track to deliver 1 billion doses of a new single-shot vaccine by the end of 2021. He is a graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he received an MBA from Wharton. He began his career at Johnson & Johnson as a sales representative with Janssen Pharmaceutica in 1988, and has held various roles over 33 years. He is a longtime champion of diversity and inclusion, corporate culture, and innovation. Please welcome the chairman of the board and the chief executive officer of Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorski. Alex, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for being here. Well, Joe, thank you very much for having me. I know this has been an incredibly crazy, busy time for you. Uh, it means a lot to have you here. I think I'd want to start out just by saying thank you and congratulations. Really, it's almost on behalf of the world and humanity for this major contribution that you and your company have made to fighting the COVID-19 virus. Thank you so much for all that you're doing and the timeliness of this conversation. I never imagined that when we first scheduled this interview that it would happen to fall in the same week of all this news, I have to tell you, I could not be more proud of our company, of our colleagues, and all the scientists, the physicians, the engineers, and teammates really responsible for the announcement that we made this week regarding our COVID-19 vaccine. It's not often you have an opportunity to do something that truly impacts the world. Obviously very proud, but more importantly, we think it's great news for our country and the world. It certainly is great news. Let me ask you, I mean, the impact that you feel that this vaccine is going to have, how do you see this impacting the fight against COVID, both in the short term and the longer term? I think there's a lot of lessons that we've learned over the last 13 months. You know, one certainly is that, unfortunately, this virus has turned out to be much more challenging than any of us probably anticipated initially. You know, I, for one, can remember being in the office and hearing from some of our scientists then that, we should close our facilities and go remote thinking, okay, we might be back to work in about four or eight weeks. And obviously that didn't come to fruition. I think we got lulled into somewhat of a false sense of complacency over the last summer when we saw the caseload drop off into a bit of a nadir. But of course, just before it took off with a significant increase as we headed to the fall, I'd like to think that based upon Again, the remarkable efforts of not only our, our people here at J&J, but in the biopharmaceutical industry, that the introduction now of three vaccines is going to make a significant difference in this fight against the virus. And particularly as we head into the second quarter of 2021, where we should be able to produce literally hundreds of millions of vaccines to be distributed. If we can get those shots in arms, so to speak, over the next several months, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to make a significant impact in the incidence rate, the morbidity, the mortality rate, and in our ability to get our lives somewhat back to a new kind of normal. 
which can't happen soon enough. And so many people, I think, are enthusiastic about your vaccine, particularly because it's a one-shot vaccine. It's had a high efficacy rate, so that certainly there's a lot of hope for the future based upon what you've developed. What you've mentioned already is that what you've done, and it really is, it's the culmination of great leadership, a great team, culture, innovation. Talk a little bit about some of the things that led up to your ability, even to be in the position to do this, right? I mean, because we're seeing the output of it, but all those things had to be aligned as a company for you to be able to execute on that. Tell us about that, please. Well, you're right. In many ways, it might appear what we've been doing over the last several months or the last year is impressive. But in fact, that represents really the results of literally decades of investment, of capability building, of people, of efforts across our pharmaceutical business, let alone in our vaccine area. As is often the case in science and industry, it started with an aspirational idea. In fact, I can remember the meeting where a group of our scientists got together and as they were thinking about the future, the aspiration was try to imagine a world without disease. And of course, there was a lot of skepticism and cynicism in the room more than a decade ago when that idea was brought forward. But as we continue to drill down on that concept, a very important component was how can we move from a paradigm of treating disease to actually preventing disease from occurring in the first place? And with that, of course, part and parcel would mean, could you have a vaccine platform that could be applied across a range of different potential therapeutic areas, again, that may make people immune to developing certain conditions, whether it was infectious disease, maybe even longer term with new sciences, things in cancer, things in Alzheimer's disease, in other areas that we were operating in. As a very bold goal, we decided to acquire a company called Crucell that had a vaccine platform bought the company, started doing a lot of research and development. And unfortunately, the first several forays actually failed. I think the company, it was a slightly over a $2 billion acquisition, and we ended up writing off almost half of the acquisition. With what remained, there were two important components in a vector platform, the AdVac26 vector, and a manufacturing process were really instrumental. And we would not be where we are today with the COVID vaccine had we not had this platform and again, this capability to manufacture. And then we went through many years where we applied it in areas like Ebola, like HIV, and used it in more than 100,000 people. And we had some good early results. Early last January, when some of our scientists initially got the genomic sequencing information about COVID-19, they didn't ask for permission. They just took their own initiative and they applied it and then came forward saying that they felt that they had multiple different constructs that offered a very high probability and potential of working against COVID-19. And that's when our work really began in earnest. It's interesting just to go back. I mean, it sounds like you really could have gone in a couple of different directions after you had that acquisition. Things initially didn't go the way that you wanted them to, but you really learned from that and then ultimately were able to build on it. It sounds like you also created a culture where these scientists took the initiative up front. Like you said, if you could talk a little bit about what the early stages of COVID were like and the early decisions that you made, because even when they came forward, you had to make a huge decision to mobilize the company around this initiative. Can you talk about that? It really does start with the culture that you're building. And in a company like ours that's been around for more than 130 years, over half of which is in the pharmaceutical industry, where timelines can frequently take 17 years, science usually tends to be more incremental, but it occasionally breakthrough. 
it's incumbent for a company like ours to take multiple risks in terms of different new options, new targets that we feel that can make a huge difference in helping to solve unmet medical need, ultimately helping patients and, and helping consumers. And we've always had an attitude of, we certainly can't invent everything internally. About 50% of the time, we tend to go external for innovation, but then we add clinical and regulatory, commercial, other clinical development expertise to build that platform out. And it rarely goes in a linear manner. There tend to be ups and downs and twists and turns along the way. It's about creating a culture where you encourage appropriate risk-taking, not when it comes to areas of safety or compliance, but of course, in other areas to see if something is actually going to work. It requires creating a culture where people are supported, where they're allowed to experiment, where they're given autonomy, and yet at the same time, they feel a personal responsibility to seeing something through. That certainly was the case here as well, because in spite of the setbacks, our team knew scientifically that there was something there and they had the grit the stick to itness to stay in this for a long period of time. And I think that manifested itself. But you know, early on, as soon as we saw that we had this potential, we then said, okay, well, what would the ideal vaccine look like? And we staked out multiple parameters to say, well, look, we needed one that was safe. We needed one that was effective. Ideally, it would be one shot and it would require few really significant logistical challenges such as refrigeration. And so with that information, we looked at more than a dozen different paradigms that had been put together, did a selection of several, and then started our clinical trials, some preclinical work, some testing and models. Then we quickly went into humans that confirmed our earlier hypothesis that this was a vector that had been used in many, many patients. So the safety profile that was demonstrated, it showed good early efficacy. We felt we could do this with a single dose that we knew would make a huge difference, not only rural parts of the United States, let alone around the world. Well, it's tremendous what you've achieved. And you talked about the culture, appropriate risk-taking, people being supported. What advice would you give to other leaders about how they can have or inspire that type of a culture in their organizations? I think there's a few things that we try to do. One is it all starts with hiring the very best people. Because an organization our size, there's no single individual or leader who won't be able to make the seminal difference. Rather, it's the collective efforts of dozens and thousands, literally, of colleagues who are really talented, really capable. Two, it's finding people with deep insights and experience in their particular field. You know, again, in some of these areas of science where we are, scientists literally dedicate their entire careers to one or two particular areas. And so making sure that You've got the people who know these fields the best so that when you're faced with a decision, you can rely on them. I think three, it's about building an environment whereas you know, our head of research and development says, you take the risk, I take the blame. So that people feel as though they're supported and that they can stick their neck out, that they can do things that maybe haven't been done before and know that they're not risking their career in doing so, but in fact, they're going to be supported and helped and looked out after along the way. And then I think it's also about creating a collaborative environment where people can be themselves, can speak out, can speak up, where you're encouraging sharing of information versus just verticals, where you know people are more insular 
and focused only on their particular zone. And when we do that, we find that it creates a lot of different touch points across the company, across our different functional areas, therapeutic areas that ultimately helps us achieve quite a bit. So those are some of the things that we do. Those sound like clearly great things. Also, I can see, you know, you bring a humility to your leadership. I've read a lot about you and talked to other Johnson & Johnson employees, and you're very respected for that, giving the credit really to everyone. You played a key role clearly as the leader, as the CEO, and people talk about the way you communicate and the vision you set. Talk a little bit about that. And again, maybe some advice you'd have or insights you'd have, things you've learned along the way, but how to get people working together and how to really cast that vision. I've learned many lessons. I think all of us as leaders have had to really reflect, especially in a COVID-19 environment where we just can't walk down the hallway and connect with people. We can't fly to a particular location and engage with them with close proximity. We're working more and more virtually and communicating in a lot of different ways. And a few things that I've tried to implement from the very, very beginning were number one, communicate, communicate, communicate. I think that in a virtual world, staying engaged, utilizing what media we have to be connected, to listen, to provide a forum where you can have discussion, debate is more important than ever. Because if you're not actively organizing it, it's just not taking place. You know, those same hallway discussions, those same meeting sidebars that would just happen serendipitously before you've got to orchestrate. And so more than ever, it's about communicating, engaging with your organization. I always feel as a leader, if you don't go down two or three levels, all the news that you get is really good news or really bad news. And your jokes get really funny. And so it's essential for you as a leader to always be trying to reach down, to stay connected, to stay real, stay authentic. And not that you're jumping the chain of command, but so that you're staying close to where the action and where the decisions actually get made. It makes you a much more aware leader. And then that way, when a decision does come to you, you're much better prepared and you have greater insight to actually be able to add to the conversation. I think the second thing is, helping people learn this, how do we differentiate between our personal and our business lives in a Zoom environment? More and more we see as people aren't commuting, they're on Zoom calls earlier, they're going later, people's work patterns have changed. I know for me, for example, I would notice a sudden drop off around five o'clock and then around eight o'clock, just maybe when I would be stopping, I would see this flood, this torrent of emails or activity coming on because people had taken off for dinner. And so our work pattern kind of ebbs and flows and helping people deal with that so that, you know, every time that you saw another, you didn't feel compelled that you had to respond within two minutes, but how would you set priorities, put first things first, give people time away to stay refreshed and be able to take care of themselves was more important than ever in this environment. You know, look, everybody was challenged with their family balance, their work balance, especially when they're staying home and maybe schools were closed. The impact that that had on so many of our employees was significant. And then last but not least, I think having some empathy. I think all of us, we're missing parts of our lives. We're not being able to, in certain cases, to see our parents. There's certain stress levels that are up. And I think it's always good for leaders to demonstrate a certain authenticity and humility and empathy because sometimes we think as leaders, we kind of have to have this perfect image that we project when in fact, sometimes when we show a little bit of vulnerability and that, hey, we're not 
Superman or Superwoman that we're trying to figure this all out too, makes us much more human. And in fact, I think increases the kind of support and confidence that people have in you as a leader. That's really true, isn't it? Because sometimes the media will focus on the image of a CEO or a leader as someone who's got to have all the answers you're directing and so forth. And at the same time, some of the best leaders, and clearly this is what you're saying too, are empathetic. They're demonstrating appreciation. They're listening to their people. They're saying, hey, look, I don't have all the answers. And that has to be something that really connects that leader to the people much more effectively. It sounds like that's exactly what you're talking about here. Absolutely. As you said, being able to listen and being able to communicate with empathy, even over this kind of a medium that we ordinarily would not do because you know you might be there in person. I really believe that leadership skills are evolving real time. It's a little bit like the virus and mutations and variants. What we're seeing is leadership skills have also got to be constantly evolving and changing, being agile as the challenges that we're facing, as the environment that we're working in is changing. In certain cases, I've seen leaders who before were quite successful suddenly be almost paralyzed because the capital that they would use for their leadership has suddenly gone away in terms of the way they operated, where there were other leaders maybe who suddenly now see a brand new opportunity to connect in new and exciting ways. So helping people make those transitions, giving them tools that they can use to become effective having them not feel as though they're on their own, I think is really important. So let me ask you about that, because I know one of the things you've talked about the number of times already today, you really focused on the people. You're talking about giving people the tools and the skills. What are some of the ways that you are developing people at Johnson & Johnson or giving them the tools? How does that fit into your strategy? Many of the tools that we've used in the past continue to do very well, but obviously there are others that need updating. And I think it starts with number one, providing them with some of the technology needs. And a secular change that's resulted as COVID-19 is the uptake in technology and how ubiquitous it is in everything that we do. It's been on steroids, in fact, for the last 13 months. And so making sure that your leaders have got those technology tools, and while I'm not a believer that technology solves everything, what this has demonstrated is if you're not competent from a technology point of view or have some savvy, your world has changed quite dramatically. And so giving them, whether it's as much bandwidth as we can, the other right kind of tools and programs has been really essential. Number two, you need to continue to invest in development. So we've continued to have leadership development programs. I've continued to have things that I'll call like the chairman circle, where I might pull together 15 or 20 of our leaders that are a skip one, two or three level, you know, below me in the, uh, on the organizational chart. And we'll get together for two or three hours and we'll just say, hey, what's going on? What have you seen change with COVID-19 where you're just absorbing, you're just listening. And by sharing ideas across the organization, that's a development exercise in and of itself. And I think it also ensures that the leaders feel as though they're being listened to and being heard at the very top of the organization. And it creates a development opportunity and experience. We've had to talk about how do you get feedback on Zoom? And how do you create an environment where people don't feel they're just a robot, but they're actually being cared for? And maybe they don't get that quick hallway conversation, but how do you facilitate that? We've looked a lot at our hiring process. What about onboarding, especially when you don't have the benefit of taking them to the cafeteria 
or going to a particular meeting, how do you make sure that they still get a feel, a sense for the culture, providing discussion groups and outreach with other people? So those are some of the steps that we're taking to ensure that we're having development, that we're valuing our culture, continuing to support those aspects of who we are as a company. It sounds like you're doing a great job at that. And clearly you talked about even you are hitting on this theme of empathy and everyone is working in a different world right now and will be at least for some period of time having to navigate virtual environments and so forth. And how do we really demonstrate that appreciation, the understanding for what people might be struggling with, kids might be in the background, whatever it might be, for leaders to be able to recognize that people don't care about what you know till they know that you care. Sounds like that's a hallmark of what you're talking about right now. Absolutely. And we talk with our employees a lot. We do a survey literally weekly where we do check-ins around the organization. We try to identify what we'd call hotspots, where we see that there's dissonance between the way employees are feeling and the environment that we're trying to connect. You know, we ask them about the tools they're receiving, about the number of communications, about their workload, about the support that they're getting at home. And I think that's allowed us to really keep our hands on the temperature of the organization, so to speak. And look, by doing all of these things, by engaging, our internal engagement scores have actually increased by a considerable factor over the last 13 months, which is something we're really, really proud of. And I think it's a direct contribution to our business performance, our ability to bring this vaccine out, and frankly, the other impact that we've been able to have. That's great. Well, not a lot of companies can say that. It's tremendous that you've been able to do that. Let me ask a little bit about you and your career. You started at Janssen Pharmaceuticals in 1988 as a sales rep. You worked your way through the organization, becoming the CEO. Talk a little bit about that journey and any advice you'd have for people who are really thinking about how do they continue to advance in their career? Well, like I've been incredibly fortunate to really start with a company right out of the United States Army, where I had a tremendous experience as a junior military officer serving my country, both in Europe as well as here in the United States. There are a multitude of lessons I learned. I think one was really the importance of understanding the customer. You can't do that vicariously. And I think starting out as a sales representative, while challenging and humbling, there were days when I felt like Willie Loman, so to speak. It gave me such a better appreciation for the way that our customers think around the way decisions get made in the healthcare system that really influenced me to this day. So I think starting at that level was foundational for my career. And the second really important experience that I had was getting the experience of directly managing people, whether it was a team of 12 as a sales manager or a marketing leader, where I maybe had five or six people from all different kinds of backgrounds and walks of life and some who wanted to be the next vice president, others who simply wanted to do a good job in their current role. They saw that as their career choice for life and learning how to adapt your leadership style. You know, the old style of leadership, I'm the boss, you adapt to fit the way that I am, just doesn't work. What I found is the best leaders are those who can adapt, who can touch each person as an individual and bring out the very best in them, regardless of you know, what their motivators or skill sets should be, are the really good leaders. And so developing that early on in my career, making mistakes, you know, doing recruiting, doing hiring, doing training, doing development, doing promotions, and unfortunately, once in a while, coming to an understanding that it's just not working out were really important uh, skill sets. And later, I was very fortunate at Johnson & Johnson to 
be given a diverse array of experiences across different therapeutic areas, different geographies, and every one of those presented a unique leadership challenge. I can remember when I was asked to go run our business in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, and Russia, and having to learn different healthcare systems, different political systems, different societal expectations about working in the job and what healthcare was going to do. As I reflect back on it, those were all so important in providing me the building blocks eventually to become the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Well, it sounds like you've had a pretty incredible career and you learned along the way. You learned a lot along the way. One of the things that is often the case, so you talked about how you work to support other people. Are there people, as you think about in your career, that stood out as key mentors to you, someone that you felt really made a big difference that you really appreciate as you look back on your career? Look, I've had dozens of great mentors along the way. I'd never be where I am today had it not been for people who really took an interest, put a lot of care into my development. I can remember being right out of the military academy, walking to my first unit, and one of my subordinates, actually, a sergeant who had already been in the Army for, I think, 10 years, kind of sat me down, and I'll never forget, I reported in, he said, sir, sit on down, I'm going to tell you the way things are done around here. And it was an incredibly important lesson because while he reported to me and quote, I was the officer, he was the non-commissioned officer. The fact was he was much more experienced and knowledgeable than I was. And I had a lot to learn in understanding that. But at the same time, being able to build respect, trust, credibility was an invaluable lesson for me. And I remember the lessons that he taught me to this day. I had the really good fortune of going back to business school once I started in kind of a marketing track at Johnson & Johnson. And I remember getting exposed to not only great faculty, but also some of my fellow classmates who were at different levels in their careers. And I was able to establish a broad network of kind of mentors and friends there who stayed in touch as we went through our various careers. And many of them have gone on to become CEOs and other really successful. And, it, and it's given me a great family that I could always reach out to, to compare notes and to learn lessons from each other. And then, of course, I had more traditional mentors, people that I worked for who weren't afraid to pull me aside and tell me what I did well, tell me where I needed to do a lot better job, that challenged me, sometimes believed in me more than I believed in myself in terms of stretch assignments along the way. And last but not least, some of my best mentors have been my family. You know, whether it was my father, who unfortunately he passed away last year, I had the very good fortune of having him see me in my role. And you can imagine the pride that he had. And he would come to our annual shareholder meeting every year, sit in the front row. And then afterwards, I would get a list of things I could have said better during the presentation. Or, you know, our son, who will be the first one to uh, coach and counsel me after a television interview, say, Dad, do you realize you said this 13 times in the course of that interview and kept it real? And of course, my wife, of more than 30 years who has been their support, but keep me real and say, well, you might be CEO when you walk in this door, you're my husband, you're a father, and you still wash the dishes and help vacuum the floors. Well, it is great that we have family to really keep us humble. I have the same thing with my kids. We'll 
tell me, hey, are you applying the Dale Carnegie principles right now when you're criticizing me for keeping a messy room or whatever it is? You know, well, I'm sure your father, and I'm sorry for the passing of your father, must have been, as you said, so proud of you. My father always had said that every parent wants their children to grow up to be a better person than they are. So I'm sure for your father to be able to see you must have been tremendous for him. Well, one of the things I'm taking away from what you're saying is that you really did have this openness to learning. It seems like you sought learning, whether it's from a sergeant or from other students at Wharton, where I think you went, whether it's teachers and so forth, whether it's reaching down different levels within your organization, really to hear and so forth, which is a very important quality of a leader to be able to do that. Look, I think it's one of the hallmark characteristics of leadership, particularly today. Unlike when probably you and I graduated from college, when the half-life of our degree might have been, let's call it 20 or 30 years. Compare that to the world that we live in today and the pace and the rate of change that we're seeing real time, whether it be in biology or chemistry or connectivity, technology, all these different areas, that half-life is probably cut down to five years. My advice frequently to younger leaders and graduates out of colleges, feel really good about that diploma that you just received and that graduation and take a lot of pride in the work you put into it. Don't look at that as necessarily a ticket just for the future, but it's a license, in fact, to learn because you're going to need to continue learning the rest of your life because I would dare say every five years, you're going to have to relearn new capabilities to keep yourself current, to keep yourself relevant. It's that ability, it's that yearning to constantly learn to refresh yourself that is absolutely critical. And by the way, I think some might find that intimidating. No, seize it as an opportunity that you can really reinvent yourself. Who wants to just be status quo for your entire career? If you can learn something new, reinvent yourself, every weekend, I probably have to consume 500 to 1,000 pages of new data, new information about things we're doing in our pharmaceutical pipeline, our medical device pipeline, consumers, political trends, economic trends. But that learning, to me, is what's so exciting, so dynamic, and really makes, you know, not only my job, but makes life interesting. That's great. Well, it's something that all of us need to be thinking about. And again, that mindset that you talked about, really seeing opportunity, how do we gain from that? If you think about yourself and you look at your career, starting at West Point, Janssen, Johnson & Johnson, and so forth, is there any advice, if you were talking to a younger Alex Gorski, is there any advice you might give yourself? A few things that I'd share. I think constantly learning. By the way, what goes along with that is reading. I'm a huge proponent of reading. I've always got a book nearby. I usually have got about three or four different books that I'll read simultaneously. And they're not just all business books. Read histories, read biographies, lessons from the past, because if we don't, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Pursue as much education as you can. One of the few things in life that people can't take away is your education. I think to stretch yourself. And I think everyone should do this. I think all too often I see people are afraid or have a certain amount of fear of failing versus seeing the opportunity and going for something a little bit bigger. Now, I think you've got to provide a supportive environment so people do fall along the way that they're not caught flat-footed or really challenged. But I always encourage people, you know, don't underestimate what you're truly capable of. And I've always found that when I stretch myself, it's sometimes frankly, when I'm at my best. And last but not least is this idea of don't think you have to have all the answers all the time. Having humility, being willing to learn, being willing to listen. My mother always told me, you know, you never learned a thing when you were talking. Being able to absorb 
those are really important leadership characteristics. You don't have to dominate the conversation to have the most important insight in the room, but getting people comfortable with that can sometimes be a challenge. So last but not least, I think so much about life, Joe, is grit. And it's about being able to pick yourself up, being able to carry on, even when there's a lot of stress, when things can seem at times a bit insurmountable, being able to not only pick yourself up, but your teammates around you, having a sense of humor. People want to work for leaders that they believe and they like that aren't necessarily perfect leaders, but that they feel that are connected. And as you mentioned earlier, have empathy. And I think remembering that in yourself that, hey, don't take it too seriously. I think you'll go a lot further and enjoy it a lot more along the way. Well, a lot of great advice here. I've got to ask you, since you talked about books and being a reader, any good books you recommend or what are you reading right now? Oh, uh, well, gosh, I think one of the best books that I finished not too long ago was that A Great Influenza by John Barry, especially at this particular time. John Barry, and I got a chance to do a podcast with him not too long ago. He's an incredible storyteller. It's a really interesting book, not only that gives you the history of vaccinology and infectious disease, some of the really early seminal minds and physicians in that field, but also about the political environment in 1919. And if you look at the similarities, it's eerily similar. I just wish I would have read it earlier. A great read and certainly current in today's environment. I was given that as a gift early on in the pandemic, and certainly it's been something I've thought about a lot, so it's a great recommendation. I've got to ask you, when we first started to interact with each other, one of the things you said is that you've been a longtime admirer of Dale Carnegie and the Dale Carnegie approach. You've met people who were impacted professionally and personally, and that it's an iconic and impactful philosophy. Talk a little bit about those statements, if you would, and your view about Dale Carnegie. I'll never forget very early on, I think, when I was a sales manager, one of my representatives was just an ardent Dale Carnegie believer and had participated in the program for a number of years. And I remember her saying to me at one point, you coach me a lot. And a lot of what you say is exactly what we talk about at Dale Carnegie. And it struck me because I just always remember her as being an incredibly positive, committed and engaging person who went on to do very well. A lot of the kind of beliefs and themes that I've been talking about are quite similar to Dale Carnegie. And I think it starts with, how do you have a positive mental attitude? And I was so fortunate to grow up in a family where my mother and father, my grandparents just always said, you can do anything that you want. The only limits that you're going to experience are those that you place on yourself. Feeling as though there was nothing that I couldn't take on if I put my mind to it was an incredible source of strength throughout my career. And even to this day, I consider myself a realistic optimist, you know, not someone who uh, kind of just has a fanciful interpretation. I like the facts. I want to make sure I understand data. I want to make sure that I'm grounded in reality and whatever I'm going to do. But if there's not light at the end of the tunnel and rally people to see that, it's really challenging, I think, to be a successful leader. And I think you embrace many of those same kind of philosophical constructs in Dale Carnegie. Next, it's about the power to engage and communicate. I've always admired people who could walk into a room and when they left, you felt better about yourself because of the way they communicated, the way they engaged with you, the way that they didn't just talk to you, but they engaged with you. They made you feel as though you were the most important person in the room. 
They remembered one or two things in terms of the way they connected with you. The next time you ran into them, they might remember your name or say, hey, I remember when we talked last time. It made me feel as though I mattered. It made me feel as though I existed. And whether it's an email or communication, I try to always remember, hey, how can I connect with somebody? How can I have somebody leaving that experience feeling better about themselves and going forward? Again, not in a fake way, but in a way that's truly genuine and authentic. And last but not least, even the way you deliver feedback. You know, Do you want to deliver feedback where you deliver it in a way where people feel as though they're incapable or that they're never going to be good enough or perfect enough, you know, versus, hmm, that is a great piece of information. And especially those areas where if you're made aware of them, there may be some areas that you're made aware of where you're not willing to change. But when it's an area that you're made aware of that you didn't even know was an issue, that's like low-hanging fruit, as they would say. And, And helping people understand that delivering in a way where you make them feel that you're part of the program or the solution on working with them to get better, that can have a tremendous impact on people. And I think those are all, again, philosophies, themes, and concepts that Dale Carnegie uh, brings to life every day. Well, thank you for sharing that, Alex. We really appreciate hearing your perspective on that. And clearly you embody so much of what we teach just in terms of your leadership. And we can see how effective and important of a role that you're playing at Johnson & Johnson. By the way, also, I know as Dale Carnegie, we do a lot of work with Johnson & Johnson. We're honored and uh, grateful for that opportunity. So thank you for that. Any other things you'd like to say or thoughts for our listeners as we close? Well, look, I'd be remiss being the CEO of the world's largest healthcare company in the world if I didn't also remind everyone the importance of taking care of yourself. Because whether it's a job, whether it's our family responsibilities, whether it's life, we're all in this for the long run. And I think one thing we found out through COVID that if we don't have our health, that if we don't take care of ourselves, that everything else crumbles away very quickly. And I think making sure that just as we would invest time in reading every day to build our intellectual capacity, or perhaps to practice public speaking, to become better at it, invest that same time in your own health. It doesn't need to be that you're running a marathon or a triathlon. But find some activity that you enjoy, because if you enjoy it, you're likely to do more of it. There's so many options, whether you're going to take a walk, whether you can join a class, gosh, think about Peloton, other things like that now. Do a variety. Don't just do one thing, you'll get bored. Do many different things. Make it part of your lifestyle. Think about what you eat. Put some kind of thought, a little bit of planning. There are a lot of healthy options available. Think about the way you sleep the way you rest, the way you recover, the way you re-energize. So much of our health is self-determined based upon the choices that we make every day. If we just try to find that right balance between movement around diet, around rest and sleep, it can make a huge difference in our lives. And I think ultimately it makes us a better person, a better mother and father, a better leader, a better member of our community. If we all take care of ourselves and we take care of each other. This is advice, clearly, you're not just giving. You walk this talk, so to speak, right? Because I've heard this is a non-negotiable for you. Isn't that right? It is. And you, work uh, out, you work out every day. and, and Every day. Uh, I don't care where I am around the world. It establishes my rhythm. It gives me energy. It doesn't take energy away. Given the demands of my job, it helps me manage the stress that's associated with it as well. 
I not only want to be the world's largest and best healthcare company in the world, I want us to be the healthiest healthcare company in the world because when you're feeling good, you're going to be at your best life-wise. And that's the environment and the culture we try to create. That's awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Thank you again so much for your leadership, for all the contributions you're making at Johnson Johnson, for the time that you spent with us today. I know that our listeners are going to love this interview. And again, I want to thank you and wish you the very best and much success, even more success at Johnson Johnson. Well, thank you very much. Stay healthy, stay safe. We are going to get through this. I'm confident we're going to be even better in a new normal on the other side. Thanks so much, Joe. Take care now. Thank you. You too. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening. And we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.